For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome, everyone. I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zenge, and I'm very happy to have as our guest teacher uh, this morning, Stephen Hine. Uh, numbers of you have heard him speak before. Stephen has been here at Ancient Dragon Zenge, both uh, in person back when we had a uh, temple at Irving Park and also online. Um, and Stephen is, uh, I would say, the foremost American scholar of Dogen, the founder of our school in uh, in Japan in the 1200s, of Soto Zen generally, and of, of koans. Uh, if I tried to read the names of all the books he's published, there'd be no time for him to speak, uh, <laughs> including a couple of new books, on one on Shobogenzo, readings of Shobogenzo, one on... Uh, Flowers Blooming on a Withered Tree, which is a wonderful uh, background on the history of Soto Zen. Uh, so uh, Stephen is here today. Thank you very much. And uh, please take it away. I think you might be muted, Stephen. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tygen, and I'm glad to be here at Ancient Dragon virtually, and I'm glad to see that hybrid is taking place. Um, can I do the share screen? Can you um, make that available? Ruben or Dylan, can that happen? Okay, I think it's about to work. So I'm going to share a, uh, a document uh, that will that I'll be using uh, as the basis for uh, my talk today. And uh, I'm going to scroll through to give a a brief outline of what's coming up and then come back and talk about uh, some specific uh, images and passages. So uh, I titled uh, today's talk, Extreme and Moderate Zen Monks, Extreme to kind of uh, borrow from the Urban Dictionary that this is like more extreme than extreme, I guess is one way to put it in contemporary usage. And uh, I'm going to start with a few, uh, well, with this image that is um, uh, uh, put out by the uh, Soto uh, sect in in, uh, Japan as part of their um, internet publications. Um, And it's... uh, kind of a, a loosely based on um, uh, Tento Kyokun instructions for the, for the cook. Um, and there's also, uh, it seems to borrow from a fascicle from Shobogenzo Muchu Setsumu or, or exp, um, explaining a dream within a dream. And then I have a few other uh, uh, quotes related to Zen uh, ideas. And then um, this image is kind of a, a rough uh, drawing uh, it turns um, a famous painting uh, from uh, the 1400s about um, 
trying to catch a uh, catfish with a gourd into a kind of diagram. And, I'll, uh, and um, there's a couple of Japanese terms that are used here. So I'll, I'll be explaining that. And that kind of sets the stage for looking at um, extreme monks and moderate or moderation based monks. And so uh, Bodhidharma, a couple of famous uh, somewhat legendary figures from the uh, Tang dynasty or the, around seven, eight hundreds in China, boat, the boatman monk, the bird's nest monk, uh, famous uh, Han Shan and his uh, companion, uh, Shida. And um, uh, this is a lesser known monk, but this is somebody Dogen very much prized uh, from the Northern Song dynasty. So this was the 11th century. Um, uh, this re- next final image on this page refers to um, a monk named Jacuan, who was a Chinese follower of Dogen's. And um, then uh, on the images, a couple more images related to um, uh, Soto Zen, including uh, the famous poet uh, Liu Kan from the uh, early, medi- uh, early modern period in Japan. And then uh, this is followed by some uh, Zen poetry. Um, and I'm, I'm going to uh, be including some poetry, uh, a few, just a couple of examples from Dogen, but I'm going to bring in um, some uh, two, two uh, important Zen figures, one from China, one from Japan, that I've been working on that uh, probably lesser known or, or may not, probably not known uh, to most of you. But I think uh, their ideas are helpful and important. One is a, is a monk named Huai Shen, who um, died around 1130 in China. And he was a member of the Yunmen school, which um, was a, a strong, at that time, was a strong rival with uh, Soto and, and Rinzai. Uh, eventually died out. And so, uh, but, but historically uh, plays a very important role. And of course, based on the, a uh, great teacher named Yunmen. And uh, these are a couple poems. Uh, these first two start with the phrase, nothing is better than taking a step back. And um, the next four are short poems about um, walking, standing, sitting, uh, reclining, or lying down. And these are four Zen activities. And I highlighted these characters that are, that become a famous, uh, saying in uh, in medieval Japan and, and Dogen um, and, and his followers often refer to this in Japanese. It's pronounced Gyoju Zaga walking, standing, sitting and lying down. And then then I'll have a few poems by Dogen, including a couple of poems on the cat koan and a couple of koan uh, poems that are under the category of self-praise, where Dogen is writing about his own portrait. Um, these appear in Dogen's extensive record. My, I, I, my translation might be a little bit different, but these are these have been translated in the uh, amazing um, volume by uh, Taigen and Shohaku, Dogen's extensive record. And uh, then I'll finish up with uh, another important poet, uh, Chugan Engetsu. Um, this brings us to the... Um, for, uh, thir- excuse me, the 1300s in Japan. And Shugan Engetsu is important in large part because he was one of numerous monks who traveled to China. And he was inspired by Soto Zen. Uh, but then 
because of some complexities, when he came back from China to Japan, he eventually left Soto Zen and joined Rinzai Zen. And um, I don't want to get too much into that sectarian history, but I think the poems are interesting in part because they evoke a sense of uh, kind of creative tension that he was going through in his own personal life and in relation to his teacher and to um, the Zen uh, atmosphere in general, which I think is uh, you know an important dimension to keep in mind. Okay, so I'm going to scroll back to the beginning here. So here we see a scale, and the image of the scale of the balancing is um, very um, interestingly evoked by Dogen in the fascicle Muchu Setsumu, uh, Explaining a Dream Within a Dream. And uh, Taigen and I have talked about this over the years, uh, and I think you mentioned one time there was, uh, you had a speaker who, who, uh, whose uh, Dharma talk was almost entirely on this, on that passage or related to that passage in terms of ethics and, and finding balance and fairness. So I'm, I'm not going to go into that part uh, too deeply. Um, but what this image uh, that was created by the Soto school and, and is, you know, part of their kind of PR materials or uh, recruitment materials or how, however we put it um, is to show a kind of balance between two um, styles of practitioners one sitting in Zazen, um, so therefore looking inactive. I'm not saying Zazen is inactive, but that's a complicated issue. But but lo- appearing to not be to be you know not be moving, not be straying, steadfast, upright. And then the other uh, monk is also um, sitting uh, cross-legged, uh, but he's uh, in the midst of activity. And the activity of um, uh, preparing food for the uh, other monks in the assembly to to be eating, and um, uh, that's just one activity. Uh, of course, that's the activity that is emphasized in Tenzo Kyokun instructions to the cook. And Dogen gives many different kinds of examples of, of different cooks and different uh, famous Zen teachers who started out as cooks. Uh, earlier in their career before they became leaders of temp- big temples. And he talks about uh, different kinds of um, instructions, but also he talks about the philosophy of behavior and conduct and ac- activity in relation to inactivity and and trying to uh, find the balance so that the inactivity is active and the activity is inactive. And uh, that's a kind of moderation but it also evokes a kind of uh, willingness or need or necessity to explore and embrace uh, extremes uh, while finding the balance or the moderation between the extremes. Now, next I'd like to mention briefly a couple of uh, contemporary sayings. Well, or the first one is the image of the snowflake, which, you know, in contemporary Jar, uh, jargon or contemporary discourse, especially in political discourse. I don't want to get into, you know, uh, into that aspect too much, but uh, the image of snowflake is uh, used to uh, today sometimes to refer to some 
somebody or some idea or, or some approach that looks nice, has its own uh, distinctive beauty, but melts under any slight scrutiny or any slight pressure. So if you put something that looks nice into an extreme, an unavoidable extreme, in the sense that we can't avoid extremes altogether in confronting the challenges and the turmoil of everyday life, uh, the snowflake is something that will not hold, hold up. That's one kind of usage of it. But I've noticed that this does appear in some of the traditional uh, Zen sayings. Uh, snow and snowflakes are used in a lot of different ways. And uh, snow is often uh, celebrated just for the uh, sheer beauty in, in the natural mountain setting of a Heiji or other uh, traditional temples. Um, snow is um, also used for the monochromatic imagery of, uh, you know, a white bird against the snow uh, fall, and then the moonlight shines on it. So this imagery of deep, deepening, enhancing different layers of illumination. But it, it is occasionally used in some of the traditional Zen sayings for um, uh, a monk that um, does not have the rigor, the discipline, the steadiness, the severe, uh, or the ability to, to, to deal with severe situations that uh, demand rigor and discipline, and therefore will, uh, uh, under scrutiny, will melt like a snowflake in a furnace. Um, now, Another contemporary saying that also has had political implications, or it came into political discourse, uh, famous uh, statement from 1964 by uh, then presidential candidate uh, Barry Goldwater, uh, who was a Republican nominee um, and lost to uh, Lyndon Johnson that year. Um, and, and Goldwater was uh, often being criticized for uh, being extreme in his political views. Um, and um, it, when he accepted the uh, nomination, his uh, speech at the convention that year, he uh, issued a famous uh, saying that, that his speechwriters claimed had, uh, you know, was based on some classical political philosophy from, uh, from Roman philosophers and uh, you know that's it's a complicated issue but the statement has been in uh, the public uh, arena for for these uh, 60 years um, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice moderation in the uh, pursuit of justice is no virtue now at the time it was very controversial and and um, the um, Goldwater's uh, saying got him in kind of hot water in terms of uh, the political atmosphere at that time. Um, although people have pointed out that um, uh, a figure on the, on the opposite end of the political spectrum, Malcolm X, uh, made a, a similar kind of comment in talking about um, the um, activities of his movement. But, um, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but the the point is that um, it could be argued in a different context that extremism, I mean, we might be able to say extremism in uh, pursuit of enlightenment 
is not a vice. And moderation defending or, you know, preserving, let's say, protecting, preserving monastic discipline is not necessarily a virtue. Um, again, I'm not endorsing that, but it's, 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 uh, it's an idea I think that, you know, can, can, can be played with and, um, and does shed a little bit of light on what I'm about to uh, talk about. Now, let's look at it this way. What does it take to be considered a Zen master according to the traditional sayings? When I, when I refer to traditional sayings, I'm talking about some of the great writings that are well-known, Gateless Gate, Blue Cliff Record, those famous koan collections, um, much of which you know, um, is a little bit similar to some of Dogen's rhetoric. And, you know, he borrowed from some of these writings and, um, and was or at least influenced by some of them um, and, and other and many other writings from uh, those periods, especially 10th, 11th, uh, you know, 12th centuries leading to um, uh, Dogen's travels to China in, in the um, in the 1220s and then the aftermath of his teachings at uh, later in the 13th century and in the 14th century. So what does it take? Well, just a few immoderate things. You have to do a somersault that catapults you to the heavens. You have to be able to uh, let out a roar that will scare away all the tigers. You have to be able to have a glare in your eye that will scare off all the dragons. You have to be able to topple Mount Sumeru, you have to be able to empty the water from all the oceans in the world. Um, you have to be able to uh, climb up a waterfall or swim up a waterfall and pass through the ancient dragon gates and uh, in the midst of a terrible thunderstorm and survive and, and uh, emerge on the other side as an enlightened being. Um, you know, you have to be able to raise a fist and all the Buddhas and patriarchs are trembling in fear of your power, of your spiritual power. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that come up over and over again, uh, metaphorically. Um, but, um, uh, you know, they, they, they highlight an extreme approach. They're saying that if you, if you can't, accomplish something that is extreme, then you haven't really displayed the ability, the aptitude of a Zen master. And, you know, let's look at the term Zen master. Um, You know, that's become a very common term in the, um, in modern explanations of Zen. Um, I think the, the main term that's, that's used in the writings from that period um, is something that can be translated as adept, something, uh, somebody who is skilled at something. It doesn't really say you're skilled at Zen. Of course, in, in a larger phrase, it would. But an adept here is somebody who has a skill, has an aptitude. Um, and, and what is that aptitude? Well, it's described in these kind of extreme ways. Of course, moderation, like the balancing act we see um, on these scales in the image, is also advocated as well. Um, Now, Confucius said that 
anything you do or anything you feel, any emotion that you have, if it's taken to an extreme, uh, starts out good, but when it's taken to an extreme, will become counterproductive. Uh, so an obvious example is love. Um, you can love somebody and be kind and compassionate and caring and thoughtful, uh, but you can love somebody to death. You can love somebody and treat them as a possession. Um, you can love somebody so much that you will punish them for any sign of uh, disloyalty. Um, at the same time, you know, moderation is often advocated. I happen to be reading this book, um, How to Live Like a Monk. This is a, a Christian uh, monk uh, in this book, How to Live Like a Monk, um, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life. And um, one of the uh, chapters is everything in moderation, including moderation. So if moderation is not done moderately, that becomes an extreme and that's counterproductive. That seems to be uh, the Confucius law. But what about extremism in pursuit of enlightenment? Now, since Ty Gen is uh, and I are both Bob Dylan fans and he's also a Dongshan expert, I'm going to take liberty here and tell one of the famous Dongshan uh, koan cases with a little bit of a Bob Dylan flair. Is that okay, Taigan? May I have your... Okay, all right. Uh, so I'm taking a little, little bit here to paraphrase what happens just before uh, the end of the koan, which I have quoted here. And um, so we could say that the um, Joker says, how do we, how do I avoid cold and heat. And then we could say that uh, Dung Shan said, no reason to get excited. He kindly spoke. Just go to a place where there's no cold and heat. And the Joker said, where is that place? And Dung Shan said, when it's cold, oh, worthy, you'll freeze to death. And when it's hot, oh, worthy, you'll be scorched to death. There, you know, you'll see different translations of it. But basically, when it's cold, the cold can kill you. And when it's hot, the hot can kill you. So to go to a place where you avoid cold and heat, and therefore you're avoiding the extremes, the answer is to embrace and accept the extremes accept them so to such an extent that they'll kill you. Now, the killing, of course, could be symbolic of the death of the ego and the death of the uh, ignorance and attachments that are the basic impediments to attaining enlightenment. Um, but this seems to not necessarily endorse extremism, but say, you, you know, that it's ridiculous to talk about avoiding extremism. And don't get worried about it, because to get to the balance of the moderation in the middle way means to allow the extremes to play out to such an extent that it gets to the ultimate conclusion. But that brings you back. That's that's the only way that will bring you back to the middle way where you can avoid cold and heat. Um, now, I have a couple of other sayings here. Um this is uh, next one is from 
the, a very famous uh, Chinese monk from the 11th century, Susha, who was one of the greatest uh, poets and uh, also painters uh, from um, from ancient China or tra- you know traditional days of China. He was not a uh, a Zen monk, but he often practiced meditation. He wrote Buddhist-oriented poetry. Uh, he he um, he had dialogues <clears throat> and poetry writings with with some famous Zen monks. And there's a whole set of legends about how um, one Zen teacher always outsmarted Susha. So even though Susha in the popular culture or in the general culture was known as like the smartest guy, um, he was um, he was outsmarted in a lot of these um, traditional Zen legends. Susha was also a controversial figure who, because he ran into trouble with uh, the politics, he was exiled for a while, he was imprisoned for a while, and um, and he died, um, you know, under difficult circumstances. Um, so a lot of the poetry that we we know of he uh, by Susha was written after his period of exile had begun, and and. Um, at one point, he wrote a famous poem that's cited by Dogen um, about his all-night vigil, meditating while looking out at mountains and rivers. And this is uh, in the Keisei Sanshoku fascicle, um, uh, Sounds of Valleys, Streams, uh, Colors of the Mountains, fascicle by Dogen. And Dogen says, um, one thing he says there is, um, did the uh, did the poet get enlightened looking at the mountains and s- streams, or did the mountains and streams get enlightened when they looked at the poet? So he, uh, I think they say Susha wrote about twenty four hundred poems that are in the collection. So this is one line from one of the poems: "Let go of mountains and rivers, so you can attend uh, to human affairs." So you know, out of context, it's it may be a little ambiguous, but I think one. Uh, way to interpret this is to say that don't get attached to the mountains and rivers. Don't get attached to the reclusiveness, seclusion, uh, the beauty of nature, the and therefore the kind of abstract realm or the realm of enlightenment. You have to come back and face reality. So I would take that as an advocate of, of moderation and that if you don't attend to human affairs, one implication would be if you don't attend to human affairs and you get lost in the mountains or rivers, things will go astray in human affairs. And he, this is written by somebody who, for whom, for all his greatness, and he was not only a great poet and painter, and he kind of created the whole inkbrush, uh, what they sometimes call apparitional painting style uh, that then became very famous for. And he was, you know, such a creative genius. But not only that, he also had some uh, scientific knowledge. He was an inventor. He was a mayor of a, of a major city for a while. He was a t- true Renaissance man. And yet he lived in, um, a, you know, kind of agonizing conditions for a long time, although he he he, he remained very um, upbeat and, and optimistic on a certain level. But I think he's giving the warning to uh, be careful about that you don't overlook the importance of everyday human affairs and and therefore for today's terminology the path of moderation has to be renewed and and avoid the extreme and um that i was thinking of that because of some issues that were, had gone on in my university which became famous in the news 
few months ago because of, uh, you know, one of these typical uh, scandals that brought down the, the VIPs. Um, and you wonder to yourself, like, ha- you know, what happens to these people that have everything um, at their feet, so to speak, and uh, have been respected leaders for a long time. And then all of a sudden uh, they just, you know, collapse there and, and, and in disgrace. What, 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 what goes wrong? Usually it's not that they're necessarily attached to the mountains and rivers, but they're attached to some vision of something, I guess, you know, whether it's their own, you know, arrogance and pomposity that to them is a kind of the beauty of the mountains and rivers or something else. But um, I, I also, you know, like this line from the Blue Cliff record. What should uh, when what should be settled is not settled, this only leads to disorder. So this could be translated in different ways. If you, um, you could say what, what should be uh, ordered is, you know, is disorderly. It leads to further disorder. But what, however you uh, translate it exactly, um, the point is that if you overlook the details, if you overlook the orderliness that is necessary for human conduct on an individual level, on the communal level, on the institutional level, uh, disorder will invariably uh, result. So one way to look at it is that if, if you don't have orderly conduct, like the monks above, disorder will result. However, we could also say, well, what's wrong with a little bit of disorder and disruption? Um, the uh, insight uh, into the Dharma, the Dharmic wisdom is beyond any distinction between right and wrong, good and bad, et cetera, et cetera. So that implies that you're going beyond orderliness. You can't just be stuck in orderliness. Uh, there has to be a breakthrough. The you know There has to be the flash of lightning, again, which should emanate from the fingertips of the master, according to the traditional sayings. Um, that that signifies that that you have transcended what is settled and the ordinary human affairs. So again, we the balancing act. Now, this famous painting, many of you may have seen. You know, there's whole books written about this painting. Uh, in the traditional painting, it was inscribed with 31 poems that are also interesting to look at. Um, the monk who drew this was a, was a Chinese immigrant monk uh, in Japan in the 1420s. This was a period where the shogun was a very, uh, very big supporter of Zen from the Ashikaga clan. He set up a kind of salon in his palace where leading Zen um, teachers and artists and poets would, would uh, come together and teach each other. And he was so interested that he created his own koan. The koan is... How do you catch a catfish with a gourd? And what um, the the artist drew was a kind of apparitional scene of mountains in the background. And these characters, San San Rin, say, you know, mountains and forests. That's kind of in the background, pure nature, nature where the mountains kind of blend in with the clouds. So it's kind of indistinct in the, in the background, but it's unfiltered by human uh, behavior. And then this is the Shogun himself 
I mean, if you look at the painting, you wouldn't necessarily think that that person is, the, is supposed to represent the Shogun. So this is kind of what intrigued me. I just came across this recently in preparing for, um, you know, a seminar I was giving at school. And um, I thought that was an interesting twist. So it shows that the Shogun, with his authority, with his laws and regulations, um, now that we know that our, our particular Shogun who commissioned this painting was very much interested in Zen. But the typical Shogun is not necessarily interested in Zen. The sh- typical Shogun is primarily interested in orderliness in his, in his domain. And Zen might represent too much of a disruption because Zen monks want to do their own thing. Buddhists want to follow the Buddha, uh, you know, the Buddhist vinaya, not necessarily secular law. And that may be um, a kind of disorderliness from the standpoint of the Shogun. And that tension went back and forth in China and Japan quite a bit. And we know that Buddhism was prohibited in China for periods of time. And Buddhism was, uh, and Zen Buddhism was strictly um, regulated by the Shogun for periods of time in Japan. So, so we have to take those into account. And these characters say um, the um, Zen monk is representing, represented by the catfish, squiggling away from the gourd uh, that can't possibly capture this slippery being. And uh, these characters uh, mean Zhang Hu. This is a very interesting phrase in, in traditional China because it refers to geography in the south of China at the time originally when the capital was in the north. So it was already kind of like away from the mainstream of the society. It was already a kind of anti-structural approach, but uh, it literally means rivers and lakes. And it came to imply something like the floating world, the free whirling approach, uh, people who who kind of do their own thing, who go on the road, it it would refer to artists and pilgrims and, and seekers and travelers and recluses it came to mean a lot of different things. Now, it also is interesting because um, the Southern School of Zen that became prominent during the Tang Dynasty era was primarily based in two provinces. One was called um, Jiangxi Province, and the other was called Hunan Province, and they were next to each other in the South. And um, so in, in Zen... Zhang Hu approach is the Southern school approach, sudden enlightenment, sudden insight, uh, Mazu's uh, teachings, uh, Deshans slapping people, uh, Linji yelling at people, that kind of, um, a, you know, abrupt, disruptive approach uh, is also something that uh, the term Zhang Hu evokes. So can the Shogun tame or control Now, if the shogun's control is too severe, of course, I think the catfish naturally wants to escape. Would the catfish be justified in going to extremes to escape if the shogun was, you know, autocratic and dictatorial? Um, I don't want to get into the political complications, but just from the uh, spiritual standpoint, uh, looking at the history, again, you can't avoid thinking politics altogether, in my opinion, because uh, these these uh, artistic um, and literary efforts were all created with that atmosphere in mind. Okay, so let's take a a further look at uh, some examples on the extreme side. Of course, Bodhidharma sits in a cave without moving for nine years. So according to legends, his limbs fall off. 
he plucks out his eyebrows when he is upset with himself for for dozing off for a period of time. And that legend is, you know, epitomizes or one of many examples that epitomize the, an extreme approach. And then the second patriarch stands all night in the snow uh, waiting f- for um, to receive teaching from Bodhidharma, who first tells him to go away and then uh, is willing to cut off his arm as a show of of his dedication and commitment. Another example of extreme. Uh, the boatman monk Dogen talks about uh, some of these legends in in the uh, extensive record, um, especially I think in volumes eight and uh, nine. And um, the boatman monk, according to the legends, um, never left his boat for thirty years and just floated in the water the whole time. Um, and then eventually, um, in in teaching um, one of his main disciples. He capsized the boat and and let himself be drowned. Uh, Pretty extreme behavior. Uh, The bird's nest monk. The boatman monk and the bird's nest monk, you know, we don't know to what extent these were based on historical figures, but probably there was some, you know, history to it. And then it becomes uh, romanticized and and turned into these legends. But the, the bird's nest monk, sits in the in the uh, tree for you know months or years at a time and in a famous story that Dogen mentions in the uh, Shoaku Makusa fascicle of Shobogenzo um he gives a teaching to um to uh, uh a famous this is a famous chinese uh, poet from the uh, 8th century who receives the teaching from the bird's nest monk about ethics and and how to, you know, do good and not commit evil that Dogen talks about in that fascicle. Um, So the bird's nest monk, pretty extreme. Uh, Hanshan and Shideb, they supposedly lived in caves near Mount Tendai, a famous set of monasteries in in, um, eastern uh, China which eventually became a Zen-based area, but at that time, uh, Zen hadn't really moved into that area yet, although Han Shan is pretty much associated with the Zen school, came to be associated with the Zen school, one of the great poets. Um, there's there's collections of uh, hundreds of his poems, and then later uh, Zen poets would often do what they called imitations of Han Shan, where they would take his original poem and, and do a kind of variation on it. Um, uh, so moving ahead into the 11th century, when Zen was, uh, when the two Zen schools, Soto and Rinzai Zen were becoming kind of solidified in China, although the Yunmen school was still around, um, there was a Soto monk named, uh, Furong Daokai that, um, that Dogen talks about because he turned down the uh, imperial robe offered by the emperor and um he he snubbed uh imperial authority even though he was somewhat persecuted for that and dogen admires him 
you know, uh, in his in his uh, list of the the patriarchs that his admire, it's clear that uh, Dao Kai is one of the, uh, you know, near the top of his list because of that kind of integrity and commitment, even if it seems extreme. Okay, a couple more images. Here, there's no human figure. There's a dog and a bull. So Jacqueline um, was a monk that Dogen met in China. It was probably a couple of years older than Dogen but admired Dogen very much. And uh, when Dogen returned from China to Japan, Jokowin uh, either came with him, maybe didn't come back with him, but uh, joined his community a couple of years later and became one of the main monks in his community. And then when Dogen died kind of young, he was 53 when he died in, 12, um, in 1253, Jokowin stayed at a Heiji. And then around 1260, there were some kind of disputes in the post-Dogen era and Jacqueline left. And we know that he started his own temple called Hokioki Temple in um, Hokioji Temple in 1280. And uh, that became, you know, and that, that, that was uh, one of the major um, Soto temples for, for a while. And um, uh, what happened between 1260 and 1280? Well, according to the stories, uh, Jacqueline uh, meditated sitting on the same stone overlooking uh, on a kind of mountain pass overlooking uh, a river for 17 years. And there was an aristocrat who would come by every once in a while and see that the monk was still there and admired him so much that he created. He said, OK, you know, you're you know, <laughs> this is going to end. I'm going to put you in, in a temple so you can teach uh, followers. Um, and that was Hokyoji Temple. But for 17 years, Jacqueline had a pretty extreme lifestyle, they say. And the the dog and the bull are there because um, they, they apparently they stood by him uh, the whole time. And these were his kind of uh, patron saints, so to speak. Um, now, another famous um, medieval Soto temple and this, this was probably founded in the 1400s, and it's in the mountains west of uh, uh, Tokyo as you get towards Mount Fuji. And this is a large uh, geta shoe that um, was um, supposedly uh, worn by uh, one of the head priests of this temple who kind of merged with one of the Tengu or the mountain goblins and took on these supernatural powers and was able to dance around on these wood shoes that are still commemorated at the temple. Um, and then uh, a little bit more realistically, in the sense that the historicality uh, makes more, more sense, um, we have the figure of uh, Lyokan, one of the great uh, poets of, um, of the Edo period, especially the Buddhist poets, in, who was a, a Soto follower who read Dogen and wrote a, wrote a famous poem about um, his own understanding of uh, Dogen's extensive record. And he was often referred to as the great uh, fool affectionately because, and he would often play with children and, um, you know, had no um, interest in his, in any, you know, was trying to reject any pursuit of fame and fortune. So those are examples of extreme. How much more time do I have? Um, well, we have to end in about, uh, uh, 
20, 25 minutes or so. So, um, okay. So, um, all right. Let me, let me talk about a few of these poems. Okay. Susha, we had back there about letting go of the mountains and rivers. What, um, I wanted to, um, mention in this poem is that he said salty and sour tastes are mixed with many other flavors. So he's advocating, I think, a, you know, combinatory synthetic approach. And one of the combinations that he's looking for is between writing poetry, being a person of letters, a a cultural person and the Dharma. They, They do not obstruct one another. That was, that was, you know, a view that was somewhat controversial because there are always going to be monks who advocated, no, that's a distraction that, that, you know, that's going to take you away from, from dedication to, uh, to Zazen only. However, we also know that that rule was not necessarily followed by, by most of the monks, because uh, if nothing else, they needed to uh, appeal uh, to the culture to lead and, and, um, and the, and the well-educated people in the society in order to get the kind of patronage uh, that was going to allow the, the institution to flourish. And of course, Dogen is definitely in the category of somebody who does speak about the need to not get distracted by cultural pursuits, but at the same time wrote a lot of poetry and, and, you know, obviously was a, a literary genius in his own way. Uh, now I want to introduce this uh, monk named uh, Huai Shen uh if you wrote his biography you could say he was the last um you know there's the last samurai <laughs> he was the last yunmen ma- school master he died around 1132 uh the yunmen school at that time was very strong and it was concentrated primarily in the capital city of uh, kaifeng uh, kaifeng fell to the northern one of the northern tribes in um 1126 and Huaishan uh, had been a prominent monk at one of the main uh, Zen cloisters in the main uh, Buddhist temple that was right across the way from the imperial palace. And so he had a lot of prestige and a lot of good standing in society. But overnight, his temple was abolished and he had to flee to uh, other areas. Now, when he traveled south from Kaifeng, he does come across flourishing Zen temples in some of the um, areas that he was able to get to. And for the last uh, six or so years of his life, he, he uh, learned a lot, I think, by being immersed in these other kinds of Zen temples as well. But uh, it's hard to date exactly when his poems were written, but let's assume that these were written when he was still a powerful religious leader in the capital city. And he's telling us uh, nothing is better than taking a step back to become someone who investigates thoroughly from head to toe. Because you think you've exterminated anger, but it's still lurking inside of you. Um, So I think this is uh, kind of moderation, but extremism at the same time, in the sense that you want to eradicate ex- the extreme because I think he's cautioning against the, the masters that are too much of the, you have to be cruel to be kind attitude that are too, can be too harsh, um, too judgmental. And 
and and that's concealing sometimes their own personal problems that they're not really compassionate that they have anger management issues um but in order to overcome that trace of extremism that's problematic you have to take the extreme a uh, kind of extreme standpoint of investigating yourself every day constantly by taking a step back and not allowing yourself to enjoy he's trying to tell himself i think hey i can't enjoy being a prestigious abbot in the capital city i have to i have to take on the uh the state of mind of being reclusive of not enjoying any of it uh i'm not saying he's hypocritical or anything but i think it's a very interesting standpoint this is actually a 12 verse poem um I, so i have two of the uh, a second verse here nothing is better than taking a step back um be, be uh beyond practice and realization a clear window set high above catches moonlight golden chrysanthemums if not well tended flourish in autumn so what are these two images of the clear window pardon me uh what what do these two images of the uh, clear window and the chrysanthemums have in common um so i think there's one basic but important point uh they both reflect human intervention human cultivation to get to capture the most moonlight you have to build the window in a certain way so that takes human know-how good engineering good construction of the uh, of the home or the temple building and um and the um, to let the chrysanthemums flourish you have to you have to cut them back at the early stages of their growth so that they will get uh you know more bushy and the flowers will be uh more full and beautiful so it's that tending to things not necessarily in an extreme way i think here i would go for the moderation approach that constant tending of things keeping things in order that and not let them get disorderly is the way to go now here it's interesting because gyoju zaga walking um standing uh sitting in and um and reclining these are four states that all emanate from shikantaza according to the tradition and so these are conditions of the uh of the monastic practitioner uh generally but here he's relating them to uh the lay people and we know that zen in china was successful in the um in the uh, 11th 12th centuries especially because of its outreach to lay followers and almost all of the famous uh zen teachers from that period uh uh dealt with that kind of approach so in the first one he's saying okay walking walking of course can mean more generally uh a practice including rituals um of various kinds uh you know walking meditation uh would be one but other kinds of uh rites are in during the uh uh daily and and seasonal cycles of the temple life and he says uh you know don't get caught in petty disputes um if you give everybody their fair weight if i think you know have an, a moderate approach towards family members um and everybody can be uh listened to then you become a buddha 
you don't have to look for lotus flowers between beneath your feet like in the buddhist mythologies because you yourself are a living buddha in your family life standing well he borrows from the famous uh poem by layman pond carrying water and trapping firewood that's all you need to do and then you realize that a buddha is no different from an ordinary person sitting at home well what does sitting at home mean does that mean that you stay by yourself in an isolated room and create a kind of monastic setting in your home here he says if you let a spark of insight grow, then you don't have to go looking for Bodhidharma or go off and looking for the mountains. You have uh, you have the Zen teaching within you. And reclining. Well, here it's an interesting point because um, um, whether you stretch out or cross your legs, um, um uh, you know, and this last sentence could be uh, translated in different ways, but uh, I think he's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but what he's saying is that, and I use the word loafing in the Whitman-esque sense, that if you're contemplative, if you're observant, if you're insightful, if you're diligent, and have the qualities that are mentioned earlier in the poem, then that is part of the meditation practice. And Gyoju Zaga implies the idea that meditation is in all activities um, across the board. Okay, so let me, um, um, so does that include, should I stop for questions here or, or should we? Um, if, if you want to go, uh, well, it would be great to have some discussion, but if you want to go a little bit further, uh, please if, uh, choose okay. where you want to go. Okay, so let me just go quickly. So Dogen, in the, in the uh, book called Shobogenzo uh, Zui Monkey, um, which is the title is often translated, uh, is translated as Record of Things Heard in, in one translation. Um, and that's a kind of uh, collection of essays that uh, uh, Dogen's follower Ejo collected in the 1230s. Uh, there's a very, very interesting passage where he talks about the cat koan. Should uh, the master have killed the cat. And that's something that is, you don't find in most of those discussions, the ethical implications. And did he go too far? Did he go to an extreme? Is cutting the cat justified? Here, he doesn't necessarily deal with that ethical issue. So I just wanted to point out these poems don't necessarily approach the ethical issue, but they do have a very interesting point, which is that, you know, in the koan, the master holds up the cat that monks are quarreling about and says, like, you know, if you say a word, I'll I'll save the cat. And they're speechless because they don't really have anything to say since uh, supposedly they're involved in their own petty jealousies. And Dogen implies in both poems, wait a second, uh, the monk's silence was as eloquent as a thunderbolt. Wait a second, um, the monks, you know, uh, resounded like thunder in the second poem. So, so, um, He, uh, you know, the, the issue of, of killing the cat is is interesting from the standpoint of whether it's an extreme act. But what he's saying is here is that the that um, really moderate. I think he's saying to, uh, one way to interpret it is that moderation wins the day when you realize that um, the uh, 
that the monk's silence was was a kind of eloquence and there was no need to kill the cat because the monks had their understanding that was expressed in their silence. Okay, uh, I think humility is a key part of meditation. And in this in this poem on self-praise, where Dogen is writing a poem about his a portrait um, that was drawn of him, and this was a common theme. So when they say self-praise, it doesn't mean lack of humility. It just means that they're commenting on their own image, their own physical image that's put in this um, stylized painting. If you consider this uh, portrait of me to be real, then who am I? really. But why put it there if not to give people a chance to get to know me? But when you look at this painting and you think that what is hanging there embodies the real me, your mind is clearly not one with uh, Bodhidharma's meditation. And um, if we go back to the uh, previous one that's on a similar theme, I am but a trifling and useless fool (laughs) occupying this monastery. I think what he's trying to say is like, you know, we can't get uh, caught up. And uh, just like Huaishen, taking the step back. The, the abbot is, uh, the leader of the temple, is the first one that has to practice that kind of uh, moderation and not get caught up in, in uh, extremism. Okay, so I'll finish here uh, uh, briefly with this guy, Chugan um, Engetsu. He's very interesting because after Dogen, there was a wave of um, followers from the uh, from the Soto school that came um, to uh, from China to Japan in um, uh, beginning in 1309 for about 40 or 50 years. And uh, a lot of the Japanese monks um, traveled back to China uh, to learn from uh, the Soto monks. But when they got to China, they found out that Soto and Rinzai were like almost completely merged at that point in China. And it was quite a different atmosphere from what was having happening in Japan, because in, in Japan, the government was encouraging, okay, you, you got to identify which one are you, and you have to have different viewpoints. Whereas in China, uh, for various reasons, they had kind of merged together. Um, and when he comes back to Japan, he sticks with his um, original teacher who came, to, uh, but but that original teacher was, was now kind of um, bringing that combination of Rinzai and Soto mentality uh, to Japan, which didn't really catch on, it turns out. And Chugan, uh, after a few years, kind of whatever, we don't know his exact motives, but he kind of um, uh, uh, left left his teacher. We can see in this one poem, the teacher is known as the White Cloud, and his and that's his hermitage. Um, um, he It says, like, who among them can see, his, you know, the way he preaches, we must never abandon his teachings. That's his Soto teacher. Um, and, um, and then in the second poem, he also praises the white cloud, uh, his Soto teacher. But um, uh, yeah, it's a little bit complicated. So I'm trying to sum up very briefly a key point, which is that here he writes a poem for uh, Betsugen. Betsugen was another Soto monk who went to China, but Betsugen was from the same area as a Heiji, and he didn't come back to Aheji, but he stayed in that area and he stayed in, in the Soto sect. So we can imagine that Chugan and Ben gets and Betsugan were kind of debating some of these points. And he says to himself in the last couple of lines, I laugh at myself for not being able to overcome the disease of bias. 
But whether idle or engaged, I enjoy the laugh, the sounds of chanting. So I think what he's saying is that, um, you know, as humans, these monks were caught up in these institutional problems and the problems with the shogunate and all the kinds of things that are embodied in that uh, simple drawing we saw uh, at the beginning of the gourd and the catfish. Um, So how do we move beyond that? How do we find a middle way view? Enjoy the sounds of chanting. And that's, that's not labeled one way or the other. That's just the everyday uh, life of the, of the, of the monastic routine. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't put it on here, but I was just reading a, a poem by uh, Dogen for the uh, beginning of springtime. And he says, um, you know, the insects are telling us to celebrate, you know? So when we go out and hear the crickets, um, I don't know if you guys have them up north yet, but uh, they're out in, uh, in Miami. Um, so I take them to be um, their sound. When I go out tonight, I will hear their sounds as celebration of enlightenment. Not necessarily my enlightenment, but somebody's enlightenment. Okay, I'll stop there. So uh, thank you, Stephen, very much for uh, a very full and <laughs> provocative talk, uh, lots and lots of material. Uh, we just have 10 minutes. So if there, maybe we can have a couple people, if you have sh- brief comments or uh, questions, uh, uh, Dylan and or Ruben, would you please call on people in the room or on this on zoom and please raise your hand or signal if you if you have, have a comment. We'll start with Jonathan on zoom. Yes. Thank you. Uh, hi, Dr. Hein. Um, hi. So, you know, it seems to me from your talk, it's very interesting, you know, usually in the Asian tradition, it's, you know, the student has to kind of learn from the master, right? There's that student-master relationship. And, um, you know, it, it, it seems to me like, you know, it, in Zen, there's, they're emphasizing that relationship that the student has with the master, but at the same time, they're also emphasizing that kind of self-development. Uh, so uh, kind of my interpretation or what I got from your presentation is that, uh, you know, the master kind of shows that uh, extreme side. Uh, and it reminds me of that term uh, burning through the karma where, you know, you have to kind of exhaust those uh, kind of desires or, or those uh, extreme point of views in order to actually really come back to that middle way. And that the student, you know, has to kind of express that moderation. But um, the master himself has kind of, you know, mastered the extreme uh, point and the moderation point so that there's no difference between the two. Um, and I was wondering if, you know, what your, what your take on that uh, would be. Mm. Um, so sum it up one more time. Sure. Sure. Um, so what is the master kind of a representation of both, you know, uh, the Zen master in, in the tradition would be uh, representative of both the extreme and the moderate uh, because they've kind of overcome the difference between the two. Right. And so respond, ideally responding to the uh, disciple or the, or the student, the learner, the members of the assembly based on which one they need at that time, whether they need like, you know, the softness of moderation or the firmness of, uh, right. And so ideally they're able to juggle it back and forth. But I think, you know, another, you know, one thing to think about is that these were real people who lived, you know, real lives. I mean, we have these literary 
documents. And um, uh, but we also know the turmoil and the conflict and the challenges they they went through um, uh, at, at a time when Zen was being overall Buddhism and Zen in both China and Japan had had immense um, uh, predicaments to deal with in terms of larger uh, uh, social political issues. And so I think that um, they, you know, I think, so I think what, what, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that in the earlier period, you know, we have these very, very idealized figures like the boat monk and the uh, bird's nest monk and Hanshan and, um, and Bodhidharma, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's so, um, you know, it's such a powerful mythology of what they what they've accomplished and what that can represent. Um, but the, the the actual life, you know, is I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't have happened, but you know, it, it stretches the imagination a little bit. Uh, then we get to the later figures, and and we get a more of a sense of they're trying to work this out in real life situations themselves, where they realize that you know that. It, their own, their own, uh, you know, what's at stake is their own standing and their own self-respect and their own self, you know, reflection on uh, their status that's been cast, uh, that's been challenged and, and you know, and, they, and they've been cast to the four winds in, in some cases. So I think that's, that's one of the interesting things. So there are the balance, yes, but they're not, it's not necessarily um, a simple, easy uh, standpoint for them to uphold. And, but, but I think it makes it even more interesting to look at the way they, they can work it out in their art and, and literature. Thank you. Thank you. Is it all right if I just add a, a quick little okay. last comment? Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind when we when we talk about, you know, uh, the student master relationship is, you know, the times where, and, you know, for example, in some Zen koans where, uh, you know, the Zen monk, the Xiangyang, becomes enlightened from hearing the stone hitting the bamboo or uh, Ling Yun seeing the, the the peach blossoms and that kind of enlightening him. Um, and that, you know, or the, the koan where the master gets kind of one-upped by the, the old lady in the street. Yeah, uh, yeah. Back to the question, you know, like where, where does the master lie in, in, in a situation like those? Um, when the, when the master seems one-upped, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, uh, ongoing, ongoing cultivation. Um, there's, um, uh, you know, if we go to the uh, fastest, uh, you know, gun in the West kind of thing, you know, the, the uh, gun, uh, any gunslinger can come along and challenge them, you know. Um, Bruce Lee, they said when he would walk around the streets of Hong Kong, um, you know, all the great uh, young martial artists would just come along and, and challenge him in the street. And, you know, if he was going to keep his standing, he had to respond. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's one of the reasons maybe he died when he was uh, so young, you know, um, of course, other, other kind of creative geniuses, um, you know, Van Gogh and Mozart, we think about, you know, challenging themselves so much and, you know, they, they burn out at a young age. Um, but hopefully you can keep it going. Um, uh, so, you know, Deshaun gets gets um, one up by an old lady who who uh, does this kind of wordplay. And, you know, that's one of the most interesting passages 
I find in Dogen because he's saying, well, wait, it's not, it wasn't that simple. You know, she didn't get it perfectly right either. And, you know, uh, we can kind of help them keep, keep going, you know, whatever state you're in, you never have it perfectly right. You can never rest on your laurels. Hi, uh, thank you so much for that wonderful talk. Uh, the thing I'd like to ask you about uh, was, is, is kind of uh, an out-of-the-way thing that, that, that you just happened to mention in, passion, in, in passing, but it's something that I've been very interested in lately. It's, you called it um, monochromatic imagery, that thing in, in, in those Chan poems. that, And it seems almost always to be white on white. Maybe I'm wrong. But you said something about levels of illumination uh, so that like when, you know, uh, the, the moon and the heron and the, or the whatever, the clouds and, and, and the snow on the pine tree where it's white on white. And, and from one from one view, it might look like just one one smooth surface. And from another view, it might look like like two. Is 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 there a is there a, a standard traditional set of interpretations of that? And, and and does it does it continue in, in Japanese Zen, or is it, is it just in the in the, the Chinese Chan poems? Uh, well, I think no. I, th- I think it does continue, and um, the um, uh, so so you know, looking at that from uh, another angle, there is a saying: um, putting flowers on brocade. Um, and you know, another one which also has the monochromatic: adding frost to snow. And, um, you know, those sayings is like, uh, I think the the point of those, when I say um, there's uh, multiple levels of illumination is that, you know, on the positive side, um, on the on the kind of side of challenges, it never stops. So you have to uh, deal with that in an unremitting fashion on the side of the um, of of building up the the images of enlightenment. It also doesn't stop. at, at some point. So you're enhancing it, you're uh, multiplying it, you're uh, developing it and cultivating it further. And I, I don't think that there's a, 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 yes, I mean, you know, in in a sense, some of the, um, some of the kind of formulations that, that Zen is famous for, like the, the five ranks or the five stages, p- five positions that, that Taigen has, has written uh, very uh, beautifully about you know, is, is kind of um, an example of that. Um, I mean, you could stop with one, one, one rank, right. But, but developing the ranks and then seeing the relationship between them and that multiplicity and that flexibility and the variability interacting and interweaving, I think is what is captured in that brief phrase, you know, moonlight on the, on the, on the swan in the, uh, in the white vase or something like that, where, okay, those are three levels, but the three is the, is the uh, variability and you could go on, you know, you can compress it, you can expand it. So I think, I think the, on the, um, like Susha, as I said, was famous for the apparitional painting where uh, that mistiness, the cloudiness, the blurriness between the human form and the natural shape that, that comes into a lot of those paintings is trying to show like the, you know, the, uh, formless, uh, formlessness comes from the inner, inner workings or the inner relationship of the, of the forms that are themselves formless. And so uh, this is a way of having insight into the, uh, that deepens one's understanding. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Really wonderful uh, talk with so much material. Um, I'm hoping that maybe you can make available the, the, 
the, the document you had screen shared so we can post that with the talk on the website for people. Okay. Okay. I got to tweak it a bit, but I'll, I'll send it to yeah, you later. Okay. Yeah. We'll do that later. And I was just, just add briefly that in a modern commentary on the uh, heron in the moon might be seen uh, from uh, Dylan's blonde on blonde. Anyway. Uh, um, so uh, we're, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for being here.